This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, fellow archaeologists. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic in San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history. The music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. If you are not listening to our main podcast, well, you are missing out. This episode, we'd like to ask you to consider a donation through our Patreon page or pick up some merch from TeePublic. We humbly appreciate any and all help. All the info can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com and archaeology is spelt with an A-E-O in the proper English spelling, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Thank you. The pop of a flashbulb. A strobe holds a singular moment. Shudder freezes the action on silver nitrate celluloid. The instant is captured. And now, the hunter can claim his prize. For millennia, artists tried to freeze a moment in time, capture a feeling, pass it along just to prove it existed, prove it was special and worthy of remembering and in doing so, capture an image that invokes myth, perhaps summons the gods. In the mid-19th century, the technology of photography came into its own, and a new art form emerged alongside it. Photography permanently changed how we remember things. Now we can remember them over and over again. Today, our very special guest is one of rock and roll's great photographers. Mick Rock is and continues to be a legend. Any rocker who aspires to exalted status wants, dare I say needs, to be photographed by Mick. Mick is a product of Keys College at Cambridge. Through a happy, trippy accident, a camera found its way into his hands and he took to it right away. The next thing you know, he's taking pictures of bands, which leads to a friendship with the laughing madcap himself, Sid Barrett. From there, it's Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, New York Punk. They call Mick the man who shot the 70s. Uh, but of course, let's just have Mick tell it, uh, shall we, loves? 
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Mick Rock. Ah, Mr. Christian, I presume. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to our chat. Well, you know, it sounds like we made this entire show just for you, uh, Deeper Digs in Rock. Um, So, (laughs) wow. All right. An observation. I'd like to have you comment on this first, please. Uh, I think we can both agree the music industry has changed tremendously in the last mm-hmm. couple of decades. You know, and so is the photographic industry. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. From maybe uh, even yeah, more the, so. The, yeah, everything is is in disruption. I, I, you know, certainly yeah. the arts and so obviously how how people consume and experience music and uh, just the explosion of so much availability at one's fingertips. It, it, to me, it appears to have diminished the very concept of quote-unquote rock star. So, so let me put the question to you. How do you see through the viewfinder today that uh, has or, or can evoke what it means to be a true, honest-to-goodness rock star? And, and what I mean by that is one that could sit on a couch with the gods you shot back in the day and not look small. Now, the person or the people or the artists that you're working with, they may not have this exact moment, but, you know, they might have a 50-year career. Is, is there anybody that you see like that today? Well, I think the lady I work with, Lana Del Rey, has given her vocals alone. I think she has a good run and a long career because she's has such an extraordinary voice. I think someone like a Bruno Mars certainly has legs. I think Karen, my friend Karen O, the yeah, 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 yes, who's highly experimental, I think she's got a long career ahead of her. She's actually the wife of Barney Clay, who... uh, Who did the movie, uh, shot. Yeah, not not that that was the connection. The connection actually came through a lady that's worked with me for many years. But um, he... uh, Yes, I do... I mean, and it would seem like a Beyonce is not going anywhere for any considerable amount of time. <laughs> God bless her. Right. And then his Snoop Dogg will do anything, including <laughs> shows with Martha Stewart, so, whom I have shot. In fact, a great piece of footage of me. I have all kinds of footage, by the way. Really, mostly, including of the Hedwig shoot, including of the shoot I did with... Uh, Bowie in 2002 that produced a slew of Which great Which I think is pictures. your favorite shot of him, right, uh, for Exposed magazine? Oh, the Exposed book, you mean. Yeah. Well, the, you mean the shot with the scarf, yeah. with his beady eye. Yeah, I have, lo- really I have a lot looking, of pictures. looking into your soul in that one, huh? Yes, he's got his eye on you, both, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Well, those are some good names and uh, people uh, that uh, that do that that have shown an extraordinary amount of talent uh, and some with staying power. Uh, you know, yeah. Look at Iggy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, not that he's we'll exactly. About, yeah. yeah, we'll talk oh, about Methuselah. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to that. So, so, uh, but let's 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 get the superhero origin story of Mr. Michael David Rock. I, oh God! I, I believe you grew up in a proper English family in West London. So, what was it like growing up in London in the fifties and early sixties for you? Well, it was very. It was not dissimilar to that experience by a lot of British rockers from that period. I mean, there was no, there was no money around. I mean, the idea yeah, of seeing young Americans war and uh, it, it, it still uh, was was still impacting the the British. Society. Oh yeah, and there were rations. Yeah, there were rations going on when I was young. 
I remember that, the ration book my mother had for a few years. You know, I was born in the late 40s, so it was... Uh, and, and the, of course, the Americans were running around all over England too when I was a baby. It was very proper and, well, by the modern standards, totally mundane. I mean, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of available excitement. Um, Saturday morning pictures, maybe, I remember. But, um, but it's, it's true of, you know, whether you're talking about the Beatles or the Stones or, or, uh, or Sid Barrett or... Um, but a lot of the English acts that you could talk about would be the same thing. You know, very, very modest circumstances with parents that were, you know, into being proper. Right. You know, they'd lived through some rough times. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. parents were like teenagers. My father was in the Navy. Even at the age of 16, he got in bluffing it. Uh, I mean, they had been through, and of course, England. I mean, the terrible thing that happened here on 9-11 was terrible. But the Brits were getting bombed for eight months all yeah, over. Yeah, by the and, and, and a few right. hundred thousand people died. <laughs> yeah. So uh, bombings of London, right? Um, yeah, but not just London. It was other cities too, but especially yeah. London, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they really wanted... Now I look back, you know, we were all being rebels, but when you look back, you realise that that generation just wanted it quiet. They just wanted to... They didn't need anything too flat. <laughs> they didn't flat. need they, any more excitement. Right. No, I think they'd had enough. The world yeah. War will do that for you, I'm sure. So were your, were your parents artistic in any way? Not at all. There was none of that in my family. No, there were no... Uh, no. I mean, there, there wasn't any money around. I can't remember when we first got a record player, but I know it was while I was born. It wasn't like it was... No, maybe they did have this old thing in the early days but to get a regular record player there was no car there was no tv i mean there was these are very wasn't like in very america austere, you see, very yes yeah in america austere but it was what you were used to i mean i i my the first house i lived in was uh there was on one floor there was my mother's mother and her boyfriend and then this would be the first, maybe, very first few years. And uh, then my mother's sister on another floor, and then we were on another floor. I mean, it was... Um, and then we moved to a council estate because they started... Yeah, the council home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was cheap mm -hmm. apartments, you know. I mean, I think they had the same here. But uh, at least in New York they did. Um, but... Um, it was extremely modest circumstances. So I think our imaginations were fired up by anything, anything. Right, right. And obviously when rock and roll came along, I think, that had a, <laughs> I think it had a powerful effect on America. But American kids, there was a lot more money around for. I mean, you'd see pictures of them driving these big cars. And uh, I didn't know anyone that had any kid that had a car when I was young. And it wasn't unusual. It wasn't like we were any poorer than the kids I went to school with. It was pretty much the same. It's just a the way modest, right. a very modest life, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when rock and roll came along, that started to show other possibilities. And not just Elvis, 
especially I remember as a kid, Buddy Holly oh. and the Everly Brothers, oh. you know. Yeah. I mean, they were big, and obviously they yeah. big with the Beatles, for starters. Oh, I mean, yeah, without yeah, Buddy whole, Holly and, and the Everlys, yeah. where would the Beatles have been, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So was music something in the house? Uh, you mentioned a record. As I got a bit older, yes, it was. When, and then there was a couple of radio programs. I mean, once one got into the 60s, things were changing a bit more. And then you're starting to see a bit of rock and roll on TV, and not a lot, because there weren't many channels. I think, I remember initially, there were maybe three channels. Yeah, BBC uh, One, Two, and Three, right? And that's, uh, yeah, that was it was, yeah, then maybe BBC One and Two, and then ITV <laughs> came along right. that ran commercials, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and then there was Monty Python, and that, and that was a big deal. And that's uh, well, that subversive humor. There, there, there you element. go. You're getting me to Cambridge now. So, in the mid '60s, you attend, I believe, Keys College in Cambridge. Yes. How did you get there? And scholarship. What, what were you after? Well, it wasn't. It was. It was a route. You know, it wasn't. There weren't that many options in life, and I had to be pretty sharp when it came to... I mean, I was studying by then. My main study was modern languages and literature. But I'd been pretty sharp at... Especially at exams. You put me under pressure, and bingo, I could always deliver. Ah. And I think that was probably the best training for the photography. You know? uh, yeah, I was going to say that's that, there. There's a bit of a connection right there. So under pressure, Mick Rock shows up. Yes, and I could, because it wasn't once I got to Cambridge. That's when everything started to change, because mm-hmm. then, well, one you could just feel it by being there, by inhabiting the place, well, the kind uh, tell of the, the magic. Tell the listeners a little bit about Cambridge. I've actually been, um, and, and it is. It's a little like being in Hogwarts or something like that. Uh, you well, know, I you tell know, you, King's College, that yeah. hall, oh, yeah. the hall that you see a lot of the action taking place was shot up in one of the halls at my old college. Oh, that, oh uh, for, for Harry Potter, you're right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. Right, right. right. so uh, I guess so the metaphor works Hogwarts, pretty well. Yeah. The, uh, the analogy works pretty well. So, so but, yeah, so I, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, strolling uh, Clare Bridge and, uh, you know, walking through King's College Chapel, at, which I consider... And then on acid, catching glimpses of Lord Byron hobbling <laughs> yeah, yeah. around the corner. Now you were you were really interested in the poets, right? Uh, Definitely. Uh, Keats, Rimbaud, um, Baudelaire, folks like that, uh, and and the Americans and and the Beats for sure. Oh, the Beats, okay, okay. So yep. uh, that was uh, the mixture. Yeah, yeah. Would be the English Romantics, the French Symbolists, and the American Beats. Those were all, and that's all. It's all pretty rock and roll. And it's all pretty drug addled too. I might add. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, 1966, I think, and uh, you know, like I said, you, 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 you've been pretty open about it. So, uh, uh, and and as our yeah, dear why know, we explored we explored the influence of the drug in episode nine, the medium, the message, the music on our main podcast series. So, so let me ask you about your first experience with. Uh, Miss uh, Professor Hoffman's gift, uh, lysergic acid dithylamide. Well, again, I, I think it's we cover it a bit in the uh, 
in the documentary, I, I had a friend. I think he was a he was a big biscuit company heir, and and he lived. Well, he had a lot more toys than I did, and but he was generous. He would share. He had a much better sound system, and uh, he uh, for what it was. And uh, he had a great collection of records, mm-hmm. and uh, and he cottoned on to LSD, and then uh, one and the day good stuff the Sando stuff, the, the no, stuff it from was before, Well, I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. It would be on blotting paper, right? And he had a piece of blotting paper, and he had a bottle with a dropper, and he would just drop the acid on the blotting paper and then he'd circle precisely 200 mics right (laughs) who knows it was so fucking strong though (laughs) i remember that that you couldn't move for long periods of time and and my experiences i remember i just remember so powerfully the just looking at people's faces and you could see Everything, everything since the beginning of time. That's what it felt like. The faces would keep dissolving and changing, and male, female, mythological skulls, whatever it was. And I think that's got that's what got me into this fascination for faces. And then, and maybe on another trip, I picked up a friend's my friend's camera. Because he had a camera, because yeah. he could afford it, which I didn't, mm-hmm. and uh, just started clicking away at the heights, and that was something—just the clicking and the shutter going, bing, and every time it, so it, was, uh, it was like a visceral, visceral sort of snap uh, for you. By yeah, now. but just every the, time you click, the shutter would would fly right. The shutter every time it opened again, everything would have changed. I mean, it was so powerful um but not that i was thinking whoops i'm gonna be a photographer i mean i was too fucking high to be that to be that rational but um but i did i remember a few days later and again i think it's touched on in the documentary i went back to my friend's room and no film and i talked to and there was no film in the camera, so I thought, oh, <laughs> next time, yeah. Yeah. I we'll, did we'll take prepare. some pictures. Right, we'll prepare ahead of time, set and setting, get it all ready to go beforehand. So, And that, that is uh, in, in the, the, uh, the film. The, the I, I think it's a different, yeah. a different uh, psychic, psychic uh, trip that you take uh, with the camera in your hand snapping away at uh, a, a, a rather supple, willing subject before you. Yes, I wasn't sure that that was the... Well, he, what Barney did was to kind of blend that experience with the Sid Barrett thing, because he painted the floors, and he did that whole thing. For a while, I said, do we really need some bird running around without a top on? (laughs) That's very distracting, Barney. And it didn't really happen quite like that. But anyway, whatever. In the end, I went with it. It It was a pair of tits and... Yes. <laughs> All right. So you you just brought up the last, and then I'm just playing. After that, I'm shooting friends, playing, learning how to work in the dark room, and uh, but not with any. I mean, who I didn't know any photographers, didn't know anything about photography, never thought of it as being a way to make a living until somebody told me, and I believe I even have these pictures somewhere that there was a local band that needed 
photographs and they had five pounds. And I remember going, wow, you can actually get paid for this sort of thing. So that laid that laid that in my brain. So I did it and got the fiver. And then here and there are other little things, but I still wasn't thinking about being a... I thought maybe I'd be a writer. And then my parents wanted me to stay on and do a postgraduate course and maybe become a lecturer. And of course, if I'd known the way at that time, it was, it was so heavily male, the colleges. Yeah. If I'd known that a bunch of years later they were going to open them all up to the girls as well, maybe I might have <laughs> pursued that. Oh, Professor Rock, right. I can yes, see that. Yeah, right, right. So let's. But I wanted an adventure. Uh, I mean, in those days, I don't know how old you are, and it doesn't necessarily matter, but in those days, what the, there was no media that was worth anything. Right. I mean, it was the BBC and a few magazines and newspapers. And then the record labels, of course, that was I'd make a bit of money. But you could live cheap in those days in a big city like London. And later I found out in New York, of course, it was uh, you, you could survive or not. And then I started to write little bits and pieces as well yeah, so you, you, you took photographs and wrote uh articles for, for a little while yeah. i did i did including with david and lou with sid barrett the last interview he ever did and of course he was my friend was actually with me and it was for rolling stone i mean they they what well, they edited it into their own little thing and, and they actually never credited me for the writing just for the photograph but the full version is in psychedelic renegades of that and that's where the i've seen people quote from that because sid said very little and i know there was a famous quote when he talked about being full of dust and guitars and the writers that came along subsequently loved that that Sid Barrett says full of dust and guitars. Now, uh, Sid, Sid uh, who, who was a, a Cambridge alum himself, I believe. Uh, he was, no, he was from, he was like... From Cambridge. The rest of, like Roger, mm-hmm. whom he went, and Dave Gilmore, yeah. who was, I remember as being in a local cover band and called The Joker's Wild, and uh, before he joined Pink Floyd... And his father was a lecturer, and he was known as to be the prettiest boy in Cambridge, which he was. You see the early yeah. pictures of him with, with his long hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's still yeah. a good-looking man. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, as a young man, he was uh, quite, quite uh, the striking character. Yes. And his, the great thing with Dave, that Dave's myth started when it was, um, so the rumor went around that Dave had met with Brian Epstein, who had chased him round his bedroom. So that gave David a little bit of status, that he'd been chased by, by Brian, Brian Epstein. Epstein. Yeah, the Beatles. And, of course, being English schoolboys or students, you know, the gay thing was not something... Well, we'd seen it lurking about in the schools, and that was always a little jokey thing, so... Mm. No one, I don't know about America, but no one in any, no English schoolboys didn't worry about things like that. They weren't offended. 
in fact, of course, everybody worked it a bit later on, you know. It was a way of getting work, wasn't it? Of Pretend course. you're going to suck somebody's dick. <laughs> and, and... <laughs> it causes headlines, especially in a, uh, you know, a victor, the, the end of the Victorian age, if you will. So, yes. so, so with Sid Barrett, he, he kind of was a, a friend of yours. I mean, yeah. you know, a lifelong friend. We took friend, LSD and, together. Yeah, and uh, you guys uh, bonded, and that's when you kind of really started taking pictures of somebody that those photographs would be pretty desirable, right? As it turns out, I mean, I had done a little bit beforehand, not such a lot, but obviously the first pictures of mine, I have some pictures of a band called The Pretty Things that I shot a little bit before. At the time, they had a guy called Twink. They had been through a change, and Twink, who later had a band called The Pink Fairies, uh-huh. I don't know if you're anything yeah. about the Pink yeah. Fairies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, that was Tw- Twink's band. And um, and then there was Ainsley Dunbar. He had a, the Ainsley oh, drummer, right. Dunbar Retaliation. And then there was another band, an Irish band called Air Apparent, spelled E-I-R-E, who oh, just yeah. had toured America. They were managed by Chaz Chandler, and they had uh, toured yeah, America. Uh, manager. Exactly. They had toured, I think, for a little while with Jimmy in America, although I don't think anybody ever heard about them or took notes of them. I don't and then Sid. Mm-hmm. No, nope. yeah. I know. Yeah. Oh, it's murky down there, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sid is kind of like the first real muse for you, right? Yes, yeah. definitely. Was this, was this after he'd left Pink Floyd? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And he started to develop an even more interesting look, but he stopped thinking. I'm like his hair, you know, grew longer, and his instead of it being a bit bubbly as it was in in uh, in some of the as you'll see in some of those early Pink Floyd pictures. And those pictures, of course, have uh, well, Sid had everything. I mean, Sid had the talent and the looks, and of course, initially he was Pink Floyd. Other than that one track. Um, on the first album, I think he wrote everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he uh, was the initial genius, yes. And it was his idea. Mm-hmm. He had two cats. One was called Pink yeah. and one was called Floyd. And, of course, they were named after... The Bluesmen, right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he kind of he kind of had that, uh, and, and I've read this. Uh, you you've mentioned this this sort of uh, poet Modi uh, yes. thing about him that you kind of you could see. Would, would would it be fair to say that this was something that you aspired to become yourself? I would think so. Yeah, I think that's very true. That I mean, in fact, are you somewhere there are scribblings that I had made, and at one point maybe I thought I'd be a lyricist, you know. That was in my mind there. But it was certainly about, around writing, around literature. So I saw them, I wasn't a, you know, I wasn't a commercial photographer. I wasn't, didn't have anything to do with Fleet Street. I wasn't, you know, it was, I saw them, all those early characters and, Certainly, Dave and Lou, of course, and Iggy, and and even Freddie, through that prism of uh, being, you know, great, romantic in with a big R, artists. I saw them as artists from the beginning. I always saw them. Of course, I have been. I remember the guy when I 
who turned me on to Bob Dylan. So I was an, an admirer. And in fact, I saw, I remember being, I don't know how old I was, but I wasn't, that old going down to London to the Albert Hall gig where halfway through, it must oh, have been... they were yelling at him, right. Yeah, halfway through, he brought the band out, although they weren't called the band at that moment. And he talked about people not understanding it because it was American music. But um, So these things, and of course of the Beatles, I probably admired John Lennon, you know, Mm -hmm. most because he was the most obviously subversive. And that was kind of the spirit that was welling around there and that produced, you know, Produced the Stones for a start, and that Andrew Oldham-inspired rebel thing that he he propagated. Uh, well, the, Andrew the, Oldham, he became, likes to say the black hat. You know, the white hat was taken, so what's left is the black hat. And uh, he, I got to know him in. I mean, he's still a friend of mine to this day. I got to know him in uh, in the late seventies in New York when I was running between London and New York and my wife and the girlfriend and whatever, the madness of that period. And uh, he had a band called The Werewolves. And we became, well, we became close. We did a ton of cocaine together. You know, that's how a lot of those relationships. You share a little, I share a little. We're all good. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So you've compared yourself to an assassin. Uh, I'm sure you don't mean stalker, (laughs) certainly Certainly not killer per se, but I, I would assume. No, but killer in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. Like I'm going to get the image. Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, so even if I've got to cut metaphorically cut your heart out, <laughs> I'm going to get. I'm a shooter. Do you know? I mean, I do, I mean, or, or do you or do you do you wait until you get back to the dark room? Because you know, I mean, you know, you're shooting. No, I don't spend any. I stopped spending time in the dark room by the mid seventies. That was not. My favorite act, my act, my favorite thing was the shooting. Yeah. And to this day, for all the other things that I do, the thing that get, the thing that is most therapeutic for me is the act of shooting. And when I go in, I go through the lens into what I call, you know, the magic garden or romper room. That's why over the years, I uh, more and more I enjoyed actually, you know, relating to people. And really, that's mostly what I do now. Haven't shot. For a while, I, I shot for the W Hotels, and I would shoot performance and portraits. I had a contract with them for a few years. and uh, But really, what I like best is the whole process of, uh, of a photo session and, and how I prepare myself. And... How, what I go through internally to achieve the focus that I need uh, when I shoot. Yeah, I can roll out of bed and take pictures of my cats or my wife or my daughter maybe, but to do a shoot, I need, I do my yoga. The yoga is very important in it. I think that opened me up early on visually in a way it extended that LSD experience into a discipline whereby I think it opened up. People said, well, you were very intuitive. And they'd say, well, I don't know. That's not for me to judge. But I do think it probably worked on the old pineal gland, the third eye, 
uh, and still does to this day. I still do 10 minutes headstands every day uh, before I do my workout. And uh, you're, you're a practitioner of kundalini yoga, right? Uh, I am now. I started out in London. That I came across after I had started to recover from my heart bypass surgery. But up until then, it was Hatha Yoga. It was the BKS Iyengar. Mm -hmm. And these were the people that I learned it. And, I, you know, I've been doing it a long, long, long time. Mm. How about the first class I ever did was in 1970s. So, but whatever was going on, I, you know, I became a vegetarian. Whatever was in the air in that hippie thing, you know, I didn't think I was ever a I suppose I took the LSD. And, but my interests were aroused by that whole oh, it was hippie thing. expander, of course. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you would understand that. Yeah. Yes, of course you would. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, um, Steve Jobs would, would have told you the same thing, and, oh, I'm oh, sure. Yeah, yeah that, and did. A fave of mine. Right, right. So are, are you devotional to uh, Kundalini? Well, let's put it like this. I'm certainly... I'm certainly a true believer, and I do chant every day. And uh, when I meditate, I use TM mixed in with uh, a brain machine, a light and sound machine, which I've been using for a long time. Um, so these things are very important. And really, the last decade, probably, I almost always get a massage before I do a shoot. In fact, you will find... You look at if you were to peruse a lot of my contracts, no, you'll see if I'm <laughs> in the rider. Yes, there's no hookers, there's no drugs, there's no sweeties. Oh, now, you're, now you're disappointing me. I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the old Mick yeah, Rock. Right, right, right. I can simulate him <laughs> and I can bring that kind of wild energy to a session. <laughs> But that, of course, that's not, that's not, I couldn't live like that anymore. I, oh, I would have died. Oh, the candle at both ends. Well, we'll talk about that in a, in a bit. So, but, you, uh, you know, as in the in the film uh, shot, uh, you, you know, you're uh, you're doing a little breath of fire and headstands before. Mm -hmm. So you do that every time, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I do a lot of power breathing, too, before I before I do any activity. Not only the power breathing, but the breath retention. You want to get high. <laughs> yeah. Then you do the you hold your breath for a minute. You do that two or three times. You're going to be high. Yeah. So, uh, and I have often been known as a sidebar when I do lectures to throw that in to point out that I'm not advocating any kind of drugs because I know how to get high without them. Yes, in earlier times I used to mix them up together. It's true because I was an experimenter, but. Uh, as again, a number, I mean, it wasn't just me. I was in an environment where there were other people who were interested in exploring yeah. the different possibilities, which all came out of that whole LSD thing. Yeah, Timothy Leary and company and yeah, whatever they propagated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, pushed, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so, let, so let's get into the terrible trio. Um, so when they use the moniker for you, the man who shot the 70s, let's face it, they're, they're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost of the 70s in many uh, circles of the rock and roll intelligentsia, and I'm talking about Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, and David Bowie. Uh, uh, of course, we we got to talk about Bowie first because that's how we get to the other two. Um, so <clears throat> what, what do you think of how that 
erudite bookworm of a man with the sense of flair and dash and a dash for the dramatic has fared now that he has uh, gone back to the heavens. Oh, it only gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? He does, I mean, David he? just slew people. People ask me about that. I said, well, he's gone, but he but passed. Really. But he's not gone. No, not <laughs> fact, I know from he's these big fucking he huge... <laughs> he's bigger than ever. I mean, he... One is all this stuff keeps coming out that, that he had in storage, you know, and all the recordings. And he, he, uh, the myth just gets bigger and bigger. And of course, I've, I mean, I do all kinds of exhibitions, but certainly the one in Mexico City is a Bowie, a huge Bowie exhibition. And I, I also did that. I did it at the Tashin Gallery in LA. I did a couple when the book came out. And uh, I've done them in Tokyo. Buenos Aires, and now we're talking London, which is probably about time, and, and Italy, and Guadalajara, and Peru, and uh, I don't know, it goes no, on no and on. No end in sight. So, well, I mean, you were there to help create that mythology to begin with. Well, I was a believer, that's for sure, because none of them were that well known when I first met them, right. but that wasn't really... I was much less interested in, even though I did do a bit of work with McCartney, but I wasn't really interested when I got rolling in the 60s stuff. Sib was a kind of break, and certainly David Bowie was fascinated by Sid, because when we first met, he wanted to know about Sid. And when Sid, when I did the limited edition book with Genesis, that Sid co-signed 320 copies of, and I was also working with David on our first book, he he bothered me. The only time that he really bothered me about, about things in life was wanting to get a hold of his co-signed copy of the Sid Barrett book. <laughs> and he, that was big. And then Iggy and Lou, who were very subterranean in those days because neither of them could sell records uh i mean now okay now they're some of the greatest records oh, yeah, of all time yeah, yeah they're yeah they're, but at uh, the time set now but but at the time yeah they were uh, even raw power yeah even yeah. raw power i've got him on tape Iggy, <laughs> at a more recent session saying well three months after it was released it was in the 50 cent bin so it took iggy a longer to really surface. Lou obviously surfaced with Transformer. Which you which shot is, the, the cover of. I, I want to, uh, you know, of, uh, of course, anybody who's looked beyond the shallows of pop music knows you shot two of the most iconic covers in rock history, and that's Lou Reed's Transformer and Iggy Pop's Raw Power. So, Along with the Queen 2 album cover, yeah, maybe. Which, which, which we'll yeah. get to, but those, that's a little different. That's in the studio. So but these two yes. are performers. These two are actually performers. Yeah, they are. But, but, a uh, lot of people don't realize that, well, but well, they trans, are. Well, Transformer looks staged, uh, but, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to assume they are both a series of shots during the performance. So yes. why did these two singular moments in time outweigh the other shots in the series? So what spoke to you uh, or you and, and each of the guys you were working with? Well, in the case of Lou, he was, he was involved in the selection. In the case of Iggy, not at all. That was made the selection with raw power was made in New York while I was on that uh, Bowie tour. Remember the Ziggy, the uh, Raw Power set, uh, album was released a few months after Transformer. 
Um, but the Lou one, well, I, and I, I had no obligation. These were not commissions. I had, uh, it was, and actually, the shot that ended up or on the back cover, or the two shots actually, shot by a guy called Carl Stoker, who'd done the first two Roxy Music album covers. That was, they did conceptually, that, that was going to be the front cover. In fact, the guy with the banana wrapped uh, in a sock down his trousers on the right-hand side, Ernie Thorman, and he was actually the art director of the album. And he was Lou's, I don't know what you call it, I suppose he was his road manager or touring pal or whatever at that moment in time. And he put the gold and, and the, the, the the yellow and green colors around the guitar. Um but he didn't have any say in it, in the selection of the photographs. So I shot the pictures, was not thinking about the cover. But I wanted to show them to Lou, because I had, I, I had the Bowie connection. So, you know, we were conversant. And I actually did an interview with him about around that time for Rolling Stone magazine, in which he's dressed in this very gaudy, flowery-looking outfit that was so not Lou Reed... <laughs> That, uh, but I always just say to him, do, do you mind if I publish? Oh, no, I love a Mick, you know, even though they were not, you know, no, they, were, they, they weren't leather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not the Lou Reed you expect that, you know, the, 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 the Long Island dark poet. Uh, but David, uh, David's designer, Freddie Baratti, had made that outfit for him. Mm -hmm. and, and, and whatever, Lou had caught on to the glammy stuff, you know. And the, with the David influence, so but we, I showed him, I showed him the contact sheet first of all, and I marked up a few frames, including that one, and he he noted that one from the beginning. Yeah, okay. I was going to make it several prints, whatever, half mm -hmm. a dozen. Mm -hmm. So I went off uh, and made. Didn't have a dark room, but I, I had access to one and made these prints. Now, the first time I printed that particular shot, that particular frame, it fell out of focus in the printing. And I remember seeing it come up and thinking, oh, I better reprint that. That was my first thought. And the second thought was, oh, I really like that. You know, and being technically pretty ignorant in general anyway, I was open to, you know, the technical mistakes, as it were. I did another print, because it's perfectly sharp. In fact, if you see the documentary, you see, I believe, yeah, it morph mm -hmm. yeah. into. Uh, and I showed him the prints to Lou, and Lou said, that's the shot. Now, he hadn't, I mean, that first album cover, that solo one, with the, like, what was it, the kind of crap, it looks like a, some kind of jewelry thing with a bird, right, in it. It wasn't, there was no, Lou didn't really have an image at that time. He had an association with, um, with, uh, with Warhol, of course, for anyone that cared. Yeah, of course. Uh, but, which wasn't that many people. Although there were a few hit people in London, you know. It's hard to explain to young people today that there really was something called the underground uh, back in those days. And they that's where Lou and Iggy festered because uh, they weren't making money. 
And David helped them uh, revive enormously because they were both before they both precede him. uh, They do in in the in the in the annals. But uh, but by then, uh, by by 72, 73, they you know, they're passe. Uh, Certainly didn't. Well, they're not. They never in the commercial. They weren't necessarily passe because they never really surfaced in any significant (laughs) way. But the other thing about both is they'd had heavy drug problems. And part of the reason for their coming to London was, uh, you know, to stay away from the drugs. Well, to stay away from the people who provided the drugs. Uh, Yes, they didn't know people in London to do it. (laughs) And there there was no heavy, uh, around that Ziggy scene, there were no, I do remember towards the end, a little cocaine starting to sneak in. But not in 72, Mm -hmm. that initial rush, and there was certainly no heroin about but David would be more likely to have a glass of wine in those very early days before he went on stage. But that changed. But I think what that did do for David's burgeoning image by having those two be so associated with him, it gave him a lot more heft yes. in the eyes of the hip critics yes. than, say, a Mark Bowler never had. Right. See, Mark right. never had. David had this New York this heavy New York association mm-hmm. for those, you know, for the hip crowd that counted. And, uh, well, hell, he wrote songs to Andy Warhol and Bob Dylan and, you know, right there mm-hmm. on the album cover. Here are my, some of my influences. Uh, yes. So, that's so, totally true. So did Sid. Sid. Sid wrote a song to Bob Dylan too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. I don't, was it, ever, it was never released on one of his official albums, but it's out there. So with Bowie, it wasn't an album cover, but but again, a performance caught in a single oh. moment that made headlines <laughs> that really put both you and David mm-hmm. Bowie on the map. And that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, il, uh, In Filigrante Delicto, or uh, the Fa Felicio, yes. if you will, uh, <clears throat> which just must have spun the heads of the leftover Victorians still in charge of the British media at the time. Well, it did. But it, that was interesting, that shot, because working on the... Because times went so, were going so quickly, David didn't get a chance to look at... So I shot over 5,000 pictures of him and Ziggy Stardust. And he never had, obviously, it was only limited usage, and he didn't have the time to look through everything. But when we worked on Moon Age Daydream in 2002, he, we talked about these things again, because there was a book, you yeah, know. Yeah. And uh, he pointed out, he said, but I wasn't trying to go down on Mick. And if you look... He's not actually gone down on Mick. His feet are splayed. He said, I was just trying to bite Mick's guitar. Yeah, the and I have yeah, the frame. Do a, do a little Jimi be- Hendrix thing or something like exactly. that. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, you, if, and the frame before shows that. They're both standing and he's biting his guitar. But of course, it got. But I remember he came off the stage. And he said to me, did you get it, Mick? And I'm standing there going, (laughs) well, I think I did. Unbelievable. Right. Oh, he did. (laughs) Yeah. And he wanted to see it the next morning at his management office. And DeFries' office was Gem uh, uh, around Oxford Circus. So I went in late. I processed the film, came in the next day with, uh, with the print. It was too late to get it published editorially 
in the Melody Maker, which was probably the dominant paper at the time, mm-hmm. although certainly NME outlasted it by a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only folded in I more recently. They're all but, gone now, yeah. Yeah, I think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, NME very recently, but there was Sounds, there was Disc, there was Melody Maker, and there was the NME. The NME became like the, the more hip organ, but... Um, and did help promote, especially Lou and Iggy, once things got rolling for them. Anyway, they bought, the only way they could get it in the newspaper was to pay for it as if it were an ad, so that they could throw out one of the other ads, but still get the money. <laughs> get, the, get, the, get the pick in, most importantly, yes. uh, the, well, for for Tony DeFries and, uh, and David Bowie to get the pick in, and yes, to... To Melody Maker, they didn't care. They're getting rid of it. They were still getting paid. So that's yes, exactly. That, and, 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 and then, and then it was practical yeah. world down on the ground. So yes. did you? Did you? Did you? Did you guys, were you guys prepared for the scandal that kind of came out of, of publishing that photo? Well, David was already stirring things up a bit with all this. I'm bisexual, and I'm this, and I'm that. And of course, the timing was very good because. I mean, really, the godfather of it all was a guy called Lindsay Kemp, who was oh, the mime. Uh, David's uh, uh, mime teacher, right? Mime, choreographer, mm-hmm. makeup, mm-hmm. all that stuff, because he'd worked with him in, in the late 60s. Yeah. And I met Lindsay. I have enough pictures of Lindsay to do a book, in fact. I have loads of pictures of Lindsay. He was a very inspirational character who used to give mime classes. In fact, having met him through David, I would also. Attend a few of those, and I learned from Lindsay about How you know move. hands, gesture, mm-hmm. all these different things. Ah, that's where the cat-like uh, grace comes from, huh? What mine or David's? Both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, look, combined with the yoga, I was very, you know, these things interested yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, yes. I mean, were we prepared? I don't know. I, I wasn't. Particularly, I mean, I was wide open. I was, you know, here we are, you know, London, London boy rebels, you know, thinking we were stirring things up. That's what attracted me to it. You see, by then the Rolling Stones and the Beatles didn't have that quite that same edge. This was the new. Yeah. This was the. the, yes, I mean now it's totally integrated. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yes, exactly. Yeah, three pounds. A great moment in in rock history. One, one of my all time favorites. Guess what? British glam period. Yeah. People ask me now. There were other photographers who got one offs, and obviously, mm-hmm. the guy that shot the Aladdin Sane cover, and that's the most famous of. That's the one they used to promote. He, but he was a studio. He was actually a fashion uh, photographer, and he didn't. Didn't really do shot. He shot uh, two or three things for David, but um, you know, I was out in the field. Yeah. I hadn't even shot in the studio uh, at that moment. I started just before I started to shoot Queen. In fact, which was later in '73. No, the first one, of course, was the sax session. That was really my first studio session. Yeah, David with the, the sax, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, from that point onwards, it all gathered moss. And remember, over over on the side, over here, there's also Mott the Hoople um, that David dug out of the trash can yep. and, um, and, and gave them all the young dudes. And, and that really, I think, 
and there are historians out there who might be able to say yay or nay. I believe all the young do's preceded, did it precede Starman, which was the single of Ziggy Stardust that started to stir things. It's right in that period, but that was a very mm -hmm. important record, especially for Ian Hunter, of course. But uh, um, and, What a giveaway uh, song. Um, and if I remember right, I think Mott the Hoople wasn't really sure they wanted to do the song. No, I think he and maybe, but the rest of the band, I don't think, because it was a little bit... Well, I don't think they fully understood it, you yeah, know. Right. But then David, Dave, they did it because David somehow, I don't know, because he didn't quite have that clout then, but somehow he, they had, in America, they had gotten, hadn't done particularly well in England with Hunky Dory, but it had started, Changes had been a minor single. Yep. So that was what started to stir. And that was also the only album in his lifetime that he actually recorded without uh, a recording contract. And that's what got him his contract with RCA. And of course, subsequently, he recorded Ziggy Stardust. And that was the real yeah. breakout. But, but the vestiges are in, are in Hunky Dory. And he always performed a lot of songs from Hunky Dory. I mean, you weren't really hearing The Man Who Sold the World, which was from the album that preceded Hunky Dory, although that was the album that in England sunk him. He couldn't get a record deal. Believe it, it or it not, was the, it was the band uh, that, uh, that that I think Mick Ronson had just come on. Uh, uh, I know Visconti was uh, playing bass uh, in the band and yes. producing, uh, and, and yes. it was kind of like this proggy sort of thing. Uh, in fact, I, I got to see um, Holy Holy. You've done a lot of homework. <laughs> You're very informed. Yeah, uh, and, and and I loved uh, Holy Holy uh, performing the entire album. It's 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 a fantastic album. I, I I'm surprised how prog rock it is. So. And because we're going to bring up, bring up prog rock, to, to me, the two most charismatic performers I've ever seen in my life are one, David Bowie, and, and two, two, Peter Gabriel. Uh, oh, I, you know, I shot them around. I shot them in 73, interestingly enough. I've got these great shots of him with a stocking over his head yes, that you yes. may or may not know. I've seen, yes, yes, yeah. So tell me... Uh, tell me about about that. I, I, I you know, I, I understand that, that that Peter and and of course, I think both of us are, are, are would agree that Peter's best work was still to come. It's it's when he goes solo and oh, uh, definitely, where, where he just just uh, is amazing. I mean, that, to me, he opened like, up his brain all oh, over the place the, the, wonderfully. The, yeah, the the nineteen eighty Melting uh, Face album is you know still one of my all time favorites. But but you shot him in seventy three. I believe he had the reverse mohawk at the time. He did. That fucking ridiculous thing. <laughs> Never seen that before. Never seen it afterwards. So <laughs> no, it got packed away where it belonged. But uh, but I have pictures of him performing too, looking like a flower. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, yeah. In well, one of his... Put the flower uh, around for uh, Last Supper. Yeah, yeah. So yes, so there we are. Mick. Yeah, I tell you, yeah. David and Mick Ronson, though. But God bless, you know. Um, Steve and uh, Joe and God bless Mick and Keith but those two David and Mick for that brief period that brief Ziggy Stardust period which was like a 21 month period yeah, yeah. or 22 months I mean I don't think there's ever been a more 
fabulous-looking duo in the history of rock and roll. And, of course, Mick... Certainly not beautiful like that. I mean, they both... Exactly. ...were, were stunningly gorgeous men uh, that were flaunting masculinity, feminism, putting it into this middle ground somewhere, and you're right there to capture it all. I see another interesting thing. People often say to me, and I do point out that there were other people who did one-off sessions here and there, is they say, how come you've got all the best pictures of that period? And I have to point out that there were no other photographers around. Yeah, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't like there were a big group uh, that everybody was hounding to get into, right? Not, no, that came along. More photographers got involved when punk came along, mm-hmm. and yes, I was involved with that. But I'm one of uh, of several photographers that I could name. When it comes to glam, there is only me, because yeah. there was no yeah. one else <laughs> around so often. Right, right. But you you did shoot everyone. I mean, by now you're shooting Ray Davies and Cat Stevens, yes. Bob Marley, even Jerry Garcia, yes. and just about everyone. Oh, else. even Jerry Garcia, yeah. 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 I like yeah, the great food days. And that's that 72 uh, tour, which is uh, one of the greatest tours of the dead, that Europe 72. So uh, I think it must – was it in the wake of Working Man's Dead? And, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and what is it? Beauty, what is yeah, it American called? Beauty. Yeah. American Beauty, yeah. yeah. Which, which in many ways is still my favorite oh, album. Uh, as far as uh, uh, as far as the dead, as, as far as the dead as uh, recording artists, uh, you know, yeah. that's classic dead, definitely. So l- let me let me add a, a, another uh, album uh, cover uh, here. This one not a, a performance, uh, and that is the the album cover Queen Two, which is it's just a perfect photo if ever there was one. I mean, you know, the boys in the band hovering in space, the heads in shadow, looking out of some Baroque setting in a Louis the Fourteenth court or something. But and then, dear Freddie, completing the perfectly cut jewel by uh, posing uh, a la Marlena Dietrich. Ah, and that was the inspirational shot. I had gotten to know a guy called John Cabal, who had the and it still exists the John Cabal collection, who had this huge collection of old Hollywood stills. He was, uh, he picked them up, I think he started picking them up in the late 60s. I think he was Canadian, in fact. But he was gay for a start, which, you know, though often in history, the gay men out there have been the prescient ones. Yes. But he kind of collected ahead them. Of the rest of us, right. They, yes. They, and, and it was true of him. And he... He would go to the Hollywood lots and they would throw out, they were throwing out a lot of this old photography. So he would get it out of the dustbins or the trash cans and, uh, and they were his. Amazing. If that's thrown out, that's public domain. Yeah. And he, they may, anyway, I had gotten to know him, I think through a designer called Bill Gibb. And, uh, uh, and he had asked me to take, a couple of pictures of him because he was writing books by then, doing and illustrating them with his photographs. And uh, one of the shots was this shot of Marlena Dietrich on uh, on the set of Shanghai Express. Yeah, beautiful. Shot. And for whatever reason, you know, the brain went blang, and uh, I showed it to Freddie. It was to Freddie I specifically showed it. Uh, and we were always already talking about an album cover, black and white theme, featuring the band, gatefold, 
I don't know how they hustled that. They'd hardly sold any records. But anyway, um, <laughs> but they weren't paying the photographer very much, so that helped. But I mean, no one paid photographers much in those days. Unless, unless Richard Avedon got good money for that Simon and Garfunkel album cover with the two heads close up. I saw Art Garfunkel on TV recently. He's hardly got any hair. Yeah. Well, hey, everybody's getting old. I think he's going to retire here uh, this, uh, this last tour. Garfunkel. Oh, I'm sorry. No, oh, Paul. that's Paul. So you're thinking of right. Paul, Paul's yeah. 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 Yeah, I haven't heard much about Garfunkel for years. But well, I... Paul was the genius, so, yeah. That's, that's yes, no, yeah. but Garfunkel did have that extraordinary voice. voice. Oh, yes. And did, did a yeah. great, one great solo album, in fact, yeah. he did. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened to him after that, but whatever. But he get surfaced. me back to Queen. Get me back oh, to Oh, back to Queen, back to Freddie, yes. Well, I showed it to... And they were still dis- and we were we were still going to shoot the white shots, so yeah, which ended up being the sleeve, right? The well, it was a gatefold. Oh, it was, it's, in it was inside. Yes. Yeah, it was the inside mm-hmm. shot, mm-hmm. but there was not no decision made which was going to be the front cover or what was going to be the inside. We were going to shoot both setups. Now, um, it, it, I've got if you see my. Queen books of the Genesis limited edition and the commercial version, uh, you'll see a bunch of the Polaroids. And um, they, uh, you can see, I mean, it took me time to get them in the right position and me to get up on a ladder. And then they kept wanting to get down and get in the mirror. It was quite a feat, in <laughs> fact, to pull it together. Now I look back. But, of course, I was young and enthusiastic and whatever. And, and patient. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Probably had done a headstand while I was in the middle of or it. Or two or three. <laughs> yes, I, I would do that in those days, often on a session. I, anyway, I got these shots. You'll, uh, I shot a load of them, black and white in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Brian's got a veil on his head. There are different hand positions. I briefly lingered on a few other different hand positions um as well and uh and brian uh sorry roger and john were on different sides in some shots but but the bulk of them were that basic hand position um and uh afterwards one tried to figure it out at first the band wanted they were more inclined towards the white shots for whatever their reason were. But Freddie and I, not that I was going to be the arm twister because Freddie was the visual governor of the band at that moment in time, and he was the arm twister. I mean, he must have been the arm twister to persuade them all to call the band Queen for a start. So. <laughs> Got one over on, are, on that one. the huh? other three are totally heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. but what, yeah, when you find out Freddie is gay, you know, it, it, when, when I was young, you know, I was like, oh, now the band name makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everyone knew that knew about it at the time. I mean, if you right. knew Freddie, it was, it was right. and have, having hung with the people I'd already been hanging with, mm-hmm. it was it was very clear. Not that it matters. I mean, it was very hip to be gay or bisexual in, the, in London in those days. I mean, that was the it was, so he was very hip. The, the times um, were changing. Yes, with the times. 
did change quite radically in those mm-hmm. days. And of course, the punks came thundering in afterwards yeah. just to uh, just to stir things up a bit more. Yeah. Um, so in '77, you you have to make a choice. It's New York or Berlin, uh, Lou or Well, I wasn't finished with London quite, but the girls and the cocaine. <laughs> Well, it meant that I was spending more and more time in New York, and then I been, then I got, I, I got a, it was a, a small loft, and then there was the, a girlfriend, and and whatever, and my poor first wife, she didn't. Well, the one thing about those days, you could get away. You know, I was running from New York to London, lying, lying mercilessly, as one could do in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how you. I don't think you can today. Uh, it's very easy to get easy called to check out. Up, uh, check up on everybody. Uh, with a, with a yes. Call. Right, right. Yes, which is okay at my age because I'm not exactly <laughs> running wild in the streets. But back in those days, it would have been a bit of a nuisance. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yes, but New York was – I just found New York – I mean, London, okay, punk in London. But punk in London was more stylistic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really, to me, New York was much more. Well, I had been introduced to certain elements by Lou Reed, but New York was much more deeply subversive. It might not have been quite as stylish, but it was more deeply subversive. And so and there was more fun here. Yeah, would you say that, that maybe you could kind of see the shadows of what had existed in 72 uh, uh, in London with the glam scene so the the punk scene in New York kind of had some of the same trappings well it might have and of course the dolls are a good example because they were like yeah. uh, who only ever really John shot Rogers. in performance yeah. although many years later without Johnny obviously yeah, I did Rogers, shoot yeah. them again yeah but but at the time yeah I mean they were they were glammy but they were also definitely punky mm-hmm. musically yeah. and um i saw them in 72 with david at the mercer arts center oh the with, famous uh, mercer that uh, fell down on itself that burned down yes i also have pictures of well he was wayne county in those days some he's got a swastika on his ass he looks like he's eating shit, he has, but actually it's dog food, yeah. and uh, and he has a toilet bowl. So he was definitely, like, trying to push the boundaries. I mean, it didn't surface that heavily, and, I mean, I suppose he got a bit of a little bit of notice when he did his sex change. But, yes, I did. Uh, but like the, uh, like the glam period, you go on to document the kind of punk new wave years. Uh, yeah, well, and, of course, I do it in a different way because by then I'm, I'm, a, I'm quite enamored with the studio. And there I shot yeah. my uh, – I shot a lot of Blondie, a lot of Debbie. Yeah, they didn't end up on an album cover here, but they ended up on singles and – and they became very famous, and one was on the cover of Penthouse magazine, yep. the one of her in blue, yep. blue, you know, like a clothes. Right. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, and of course, I shot the um, the Ramones, and I shot Joan Jett. Yeah, and, <laughs> let's let's talk about that. I mean, the cover of uh, I Love Rock and Roll, her number one uh, uh, album. And still, it would seem her most famous image too. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, I was channeling Elvis that night. It was three a.m., and I'm sure I was well coked. But <laughs> I, I, uh, 
I, I saw Elvis in that picture. That was what I was saying, especially the jacket she's wearing is a little bit rockabilly. Yep. And, uh, and of course, you know, the dark hair and beautiful face. And, um, but yeah, that was, well, they're, they're kind of twin stories between the Ramones and Joan Jett, although shots a couple of years apart, maybe even two or three years. But they, uh, with Joni, I knew the lawyer. Paul Schindler. I had known him through a guy called Greg Diamond, who was a, for a while was a famous disco producer, and uh, he wrote and produced more, more, more. How do you like it? How? There are my yeah. disco album covers right. that I did for Greg. I think I did four. Not very obviously disco, but certainly a different... Yeah, the dance uh, uh, music to, uh, there. Yeah. yeah, but I shot them a little bit well, you'd have to see the album covers too. If you, I don't think there's a category on the internet that says Mick Rock's disco album covers, <laughs> but nevertheless they exist. I will, but a little later. Uh, but uh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you look up Greg Diamond, you might see them. Um, he um, so I he, Paul called me. He said, uh, uh, and I have met. I think I have met. Joni and Kenny, Kenny Laguna, oh, Kenny Laguna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sure. he's a right, he's a definite character. Yes, he is. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yes, yes, he is a character. Um, he, um, I think I've gone to see a gig after the release of the first album. Anyway, Paul and um, Paul introduced Paul Schindler, became a huge lawyer. Now, very nice man, but he owns. Um, yeah, it's a couple of apartments in the um, in the Plaza Hotel now. Oh. So he, the, the lawyers did very well. Did very well. well. Did well. Right. <laughs> yes, there's that line I saw recently popped up again. Where did I see it? A Shakespeare quote which says, "Kill all Kill the all lawyers." Lawyers. That's right. Yes, a fabulous <laughs> quote. No, I mean I have quite a pleasant. Obviously, lawyer, a but... problem that's been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and he. Um, he said, "Well, they, they've uh, they finished the album. They're mixing it now. They're desperate for an album cover. They've done three sessions. They hate all the pictures. What what can you do?" I said, "Well, I'll do it. Just the challenge alone was enough." And I knew what Joni looked like, so uh, they came to the studio after a mixing session around midnight. I shot them not just against the blue background. I think I also shot against the red. We actually got quite a few pictures out of that session. And, of course, and then for the next album, I did shoot the back cover. But they thought that was maybe a little bit too strong to be on the front because it was a little bit... It had a bit of a leathery look about it. A little too so, And they were trying to sell... Yeah. Kenny was trying to sell Joni as being, you know, a bit more poppy and middle of the road than she really was. At least at that moment in time, he was. I think he realized after a while that wasn't she's the just, right way. Uh, she's just a tough old girl, uh, straight ahead rock and roller with a guitar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's really Joan. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but a it good worked. It, it worked great. And then you know you 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 do a lot of stuff on the the uh, the hair metal scene. I, I know the Motley Crue. Ah, Motley. Are, I did, are yeah, huge. I did. Uh, you, you also did videos. I think you did uh, several of those uh, kind of metalish videos as well, right? I did something called Sabotage, and they later, the core of that began, became 
the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, whatever they call them, oh, you know? really? Oh. Yeah, that's the same producer, Paul O'Neill, yeah. who died who last just, year, yeah, actually. Yeah, passed away, right. Yeah, he... Uh, right. That was his... Uh, but And he had produced Sabotage. Mm -hmm. And that was a fucking ridiculous <laughs> shoot. We went up to the caves upstate. We shot for three days. There was so much fucking cocaine flying around. <laughs> we were all... You know, this is a day it was before cell phones. Yeah. We are in different parts trying to coordinate it. I mean, that was... Yeah. I believe there's a troll. There's a troll in the... The there movie. is a troll, <laughs> <it>? yes. <laughs> we dragged this poor <laughs> little bugger up there with us. <laughs> so, uh, oh, oh, and then Ace Freely. Yeah. I had yeah, a lot of fun. I like insane. Yeah. I, I had fun. And there were a couple of other things, something called Doppelganger, which is one of my favorites of the videos I did in that period. But, of course, they didn't. It did get MTV play, but it, they never quite developed. And they were quite experimental. And there was a band called B-Rock. I mean, I did several things that were that a lot of people have never seen. Like a lot of my pictures, for all the pictures of mine that are well known, there are tons that I've done that, that people don't know about. And they were done for obscure acts, you know, or they were, you know, things got lost in the shuffle. And uh, but well, still, because we brought up the videos, uh, many of I'm doing a lecture were cocaine at the Brooklyn food. Museum oh, oh. on my Bowie videos. On May the tenth. Oh, the well, way. as part of the uh, Bowie is uh, yes. exhibit. Oh, very yes. cool, very cool. We will. They're even paying paying me yeah. what they call an honorarium, which means it's going to they're going to pay you very cheap. <laughs> so I'm getting a brand. <laughs> you're getting doing it. you're getting a little award instead. I'm of getting money. a little bit of money for <laughs> right, it. Yeah. Right. So let's. They asked me, I said, "Well, what are you going to pay me?" And they said, "Well, we don't have much money, Mick." I said, "Well, what do you got?" Well, we can pay you an honorarium of a thousand. I'll take. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Do you get to add letters to the end of your name afterwards? Or, uh, well, I actually have M.A. Do you become Sir Mick Rock after this? <laughs> no, I do have an M.A. Cantab, though, because I went to Cambridge, you yes, know. Yes, yes. So you get the – if I were Mick Rock M.A. Cantab, I don't think that would hold up. So. <laughs> but it's true. But because of the videos, I mean, in you getting that video work, let's 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 bring the Black Star back again into the conversation mm -hmm. because uh, and there lies an interesting. Well, well, well first of all, for for all the artists you've worked with, you know, uh, you and David Bowie are uh, kind of a bit like uh, the Bule brothers or something, you know. So, but well, I think it, Lou Reed gets in there too because I always one is I actually shot Lou over a longer period of time yeah, but yeah. Well, as by and, uh, New York you then were together yes. quite a bit yeah yeah and, and two I always saw them as being you know the dark and the light London New York charming and maybe not so charming not with me personally Lou actually was always very sweet and kind to me but but for the for the most part um but just but, their personalities uh, and how their personas and and they're just yes, they, and they're, they're they are yeah. they are the twin godfathers of glam to me. Oh. Lou might also be with Iggy the twin godfather of punk because his influence has been massive, of course, and maybe a little underrated in more recent times. But mm -hmm. uh, and the, and the and the documentary shot is dedicated to those two. In fact, I even wrote did hand barney got me to do handwritten dedications to them 
And, uh, of course, the tapes that I unearthed of me chatting to them uh, back in the 70s, they're featured there, too. Yes, that's part of the movie. But yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. the psycho-spiritual mantra of rock. Yeah, so- Barney came up with that, by the way, not me. <laughs> but I came up, I- Barney came up with shot, uh-huh. but I said it needs an exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah, but that other stuff, I said, well, if you want to drag that in, that's fine, but whatever you want. I think it but says I- something that's, uh, that fits very well, very well. So, But uh, back to the videos here. So you, why you're getting all these calls is because you directed the Life on Mars video shoot. Uh, oh, I which, did. I did at, a new at, version of it in 2016. Yeah. There's oh, a complete, yeah. it's, there's three iterations of that. There's the original one. Yeah, let's there's talk the about one, the original one first. Okay. Well, it, it's basically the same video, but they've been through changes. But the Well, that was actually, well, I, I, there was a couple of others I did too. One is called Rock and Roll Suicide, which is like a crazy collage that I did later on i think we're going to show it i actually only have a half inch version of it i don't know what happened to the bigger version but we're going to show it as part of this um this talk Mm -hmm. at the brooklyn museum because it looks pretty good in spite of technical factor of it you know just being a vhs copy but the first one i did well, actually, the first one I did was called Moon Age Daydream, which was a kind of uh, a kind of collage of footage that I had shot on a Bolex in uh, in the very early days of Ziggy, and uh, you can see how thin some of the audiences are, and then it has little has shots of the album cover in it. That's the one that's not has been rarely surfaced, and it's not frankly aesthetically that interesting, I don't think, but. John, I'm only dancing. Yeah, was was the first where I actually did. You know, I had a three-hour shoot mm-hmm. on the stage at the Rainbow before David did his sound check to for those stage shows with the ladder that he did at the at the Rainbow with Lindsay Kemp before he came to America on it on that first tour. And uh, yes, it's uh, well, that was an interesting one. One. Not much time to shoot, but I didn't know any different, really, so it didn't worry me. Uh, and two, there was we didn't have a Sennheiser or anything for, for playback. We uh, just had a 16mm camera, and um, it was uh, and it was this little gizmo that I've never seen anything like it since, but you, you, they dragged it from somewhere where you, we could play... Uh, the 45, but it, it was a little bit, uh, it wasn't totally smooth. And I remember in the editing having to be quite tight on occasions oh, to make so the sure the lip sync. Right, right. Yes, to work, make right. sure the lip sync <laughs> was okay. But people, you know, and then in America, there was first Gene Genie. I mean, these were, well, the Gene Genie, I, I actually went and shot the second day we we did the studio stuff i didn't think we had enough when i saw the rushes the next morning so i went and shot the performance that night and uh and then edited it in one day in san francisco and drove the editor completely nuts so uh, well i tell you john i'm only dancing we worked at night and uh, and he had a 
he had um, an epileptic fit in the morning. So that's what oh, I geez. used to do to editors back then. <laughs> I'm sure oh, I was going... Oh, health scare. Oh, my God. Oh, my no, God. serious. I mean, he survived, but I do remember suddenly him collapsing on the floor and going through this whole thing. I didn't know what that said about... Uh, well, there wasn't much future for them at that moment in time. Oh, the, these, um, pop, these pop promos, as they were called. Uh, yeah, well, they were called promos. MTV, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. I also yeah. did one for McCartney called My Love, and that was all oh, done yeah. on a, a wing and a prayer. And then a kinks one called... What was it called, that one? That was Paul McCartney. Thing in the Midday Sun. <laughs> I did one... Because he was on the same label as, uh, and then I knew Paul McCartney's game manager at the time. I mean, these things always happen like that, you know, yeah. always connections. There were no agents for me. Yeah. And uh, and then Life on Mars, which in many yes, ways is, is... That's is, a classic. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautifully shot, uh, minimalistic uh, video or, or pop promo. Um, that has grown in stature over time because I think it, I think originally it just it never really did anything and won anything. I ne- well, it, 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 where was it going to do anything? Right. That was the thing. <laughs> it was me and David wanting to do them on no budget. Um, where were they going to get shown? Well, we worry about that later. Yeah. And of course they didn't <laughs> yeah. uh, until the eighties they started to. And nowadays, you know, museums want them. I find so, they're the yeah. people, well, and then people want little aquarium now. So. Well, yeah, no, I, I make a bit of money off him. It's true. It's uh, for all the money I never got paid back then. Not that I cared. I was I was into doing it. You know, I was. Uh, and David, well, and of course, he was such an amazing subject. And uh, Life on Mars probably couldn't have worked with anybody else slapping him against them. But it was born of necessity. A lot of these things, you know, not much time. Where do we shoot it? What's available? These things are always the points. It wasn't like we've got all this money. We're going to find out exactly what we want. It, there was no. But I remember David said, "Oh, we kind of because Life on Mars was going to be released as a single, even though it had originally been uh, on Hunky Dory and not on Ziggy Stardust, and uh, not in fact on Aladdin Sane, uh, which was released in '73." And I just thought. At the time, one is I could get this space in a couple of days. Uh, maybe the assistant cameraman who did the work on that one and also did the work on John I'm Only Dancing, maybe he had this connection. He was married to a friend of my wife, my then wife, Sheila. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, well, we can't. Just, we, we haven't got time really. Yeah. Just <laughs> come along, David, and look like David, and I'll shoot you. Uh-huh. And of with course, he never looked like a beautiful pale blue suit with the the the, the eyeshadow oh, yeah. to match. Uh, Pierre Laroche, the hair top hair. It was amazing. Pierre Laroche, Pierre Laroche, who had done the makeup on both pinups and Aladdin Sane on the front <laughs> covers, yes. and he did them occasionally on David's concert tours, although he was always whining that he never got paid. But of course, the answer to that was join the club. None of us got paid. (laughs) And um, and of course, and he never looked like that again, David. I mean, I had him in in that 
21, 22 month period, I have him in 75 different outfits. I've never published them all in one book, although any of the book, either of the two big books, I figure I should just do a, a fashion make sure uh, like him. Yes, yeah. He he never looked like that again, and I actually, interestingly enough, sell people love to get prints that I shot that day. So I was not only the producer and the director and the stills man, I was also the second cameraman. I shot some of the side shots, so. I was like a bat out of hell in those days. I was here, there, and everywhere. So, so, so shooting today live, how has the experience changed, or or has it for you? Well, I've only done one in recent. A guy, a young uh, um, guy called Andrew Watt, who's some guitar player. He produced what's been producing, and what's her name? One of those modern singers with a lot of cheek. But he also co-wrote a Justin Bieber song. Whatever. I've known him for a long while, and he... Uh, uh, well, it, I don't know. I, approach, I basically approach it the same. It's the... I never understood the big productions, you know, and tons of dancers and all kinds of paraphernalia. <laughs> I never understood it. I thought, well, I think people just want to see the act. Song. Right. <laughs> yeah, they want to see the act. And I think it's, in many ways, it's come back to that. Because no. they're not spending tons of money on music videos no, again. No, no, no. That no. madness has gone. Yeah. So uh, on the still shots, on the uh, you know in the performance, um, uh, you know, my understanding is that they, you have limited access to the the pit and stage. Well, now. Like, apparently, shoot, but I, I don't shoot. shoot. And, uh, yeah, but I don't. Radio. You can't do that with me because I'm not going. Wow. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't yeah, the only time I've shot performance ones that uh, was for a while several years i had a contract with the w hotels and uh i would shoot portraits in the afternoon and then they would have their events in the evening and i would shoot live but then i had total they tended to be shorter sets about an hour mm-hmm. and uh, uh and i had total access so uh no i couldn't shoot today i mean it would take time i got a lot of classic shots back in back in uh, the 70s, even into the 80s, and a little bit in the 90s, but I, uh, it's a while since I've done that, and I wouldn't shoot like that. I mean, I don't know, you know, you can't, you can't concentrate, you can't think about, like, studying someone's, like I could with David and Lou and Freddie and all Phil Lynott, all these, because uh, I could do a Thin Lizzy book if there was demand for it, yeah. um, was... Um, Learning the movements, learning. I would study. You knew where they would be on the stage at any. Given yes, time. I would learn, figure th- things out, and the timing and what angles and all the rest of it. So uh, I don't know. It doesn't. Obviously, people still get good shots today, but that's for younger folk than me, I believe. So. So uh, on the on the uh, the documentary um, shot the psycho spiritual mantra of rock, how, how did that come about? Well, it kind of ambled. It was not for many years. People tried to get me to do a document. I think it started out maybe with Chrysalis Films around in London around two thousand three. Then there was Channel Four, but they kind of fell apart at some point. Then there was the BBC, and then and then there was a couple of other. Oh, Chris, 
was it Palm Pictures? Yes. Mm. Chris Blackwell had a, uh, a film label for a while. Oh, Chris Blackwell of Island Records, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> then there was another company, and they were whatever. Uh, and each time I was hesitant. For one thing, well, ultimately, even though the monies came from Vice uh, and uh, another company who would receive money and also put more money in called Straight Up Films, and they are obviously credited. I didn't want to do a, a documentary like every other one I'd see. I didn't want any talking heads. I mean, well, you know, I didn't. I don't mind. I'm happy to watch other people's documentaries, but I thought. What do you? I'm a photographer. You, what it's do you need someone else's bloody years. opinion yeah. on my work for? Yeah. People see it; they either like it or they don't. But I, that was an important thing that I didn't want. That I also wanted to process it through my own production company. Yes, that company I have made. I've got some money from the film, but the company has made money because we're still recouping mm -hmm. for Vice and Straight Up, and I think quite a decent amount of money got spent on that. I don't know the figures. Oh, it's a nice production. And Vice were not. Straight Up films were on board first. And then, I, then it was who was going to direct it. And I decided on Barney. He had a lot of style. He'd never done one before, and that was important. I didn't see the point of doing something. As I, as I said to Barney over the four years that it took to make it, I said, got to remember, David Bowie, you can make 50 documentaries on. Me, this might be the only one in my lifetime. More likely will be. So, so let's uh, get it right. <laughs> well, so let's get it different, for starters. Good. Uh, that was very important, and uh, it kind of evolved. In fact, I hated it for the first three years, but there were other factors involved. I, Barney's dad was dying. I was waiting for a kidney transplant, uh, and and there was a period of about eight or nine months when, when we actually didn't talk about it. I mean, as I told Barney, I always loved him, but I was... It was wrong for a long period of time. But eventually, it started to evolve. He took out a lot of that bed stuff. Because uh, I had to say, Barney, I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very dramatic. But I think well, I planted... I, hey, look, you, you did have three heart attacks in a short period of time and a quadruple yep. bypass. It's, uh, it's a life-changing experience, I'm sure. I think I laid the seed for that. Now I look back... Because I remember joking about, uh, and, it, and it was part of our original conversation about uh, the Roy Scheider film. What's it called? The dance film. Oh, the uh, uh, where he plays um, Bob Fosse. Uh, exactly. Uh, but I, I know what you're talking about. You know what I mean. Yeah. And that was in our conversation. Mm -hmm. And Barney basically built it around that, whereas you'd have me in the hospital bed and then remembering. But but then I, I was conflicted because I'm saying, yeah, but I got up off that bed. I know Andrew Oldham used to keep calling me Lazarus because yeah. he has a wicked sense of humor. And we I, we, I managed to, well, I, every time I saw a screening, I wrote pages of criticisms of it. Now, it, it did change quite a bit. Uh, and to be fair to Barney, he needed a bit of extra help. The original editor didn't seem to understand sequencing. But then we got Drew in, Drew De Nicola, who had actually directed as the editor 
Vice brought him in, and he he helped Barney get the sequencing right, which was obviously important. Yeah. But obviously, uh, you know, the shooting. He does have a great eye. I mean, it's certainly well shot. Um, but I wanted less of it, and I got there was a couple of very elaborate scenes, and I know what he was trying to do, but to me it was far too much that we got rid of. I mean, he he agreed, uh, and in the end I had to live with a couple of things I would rather have got rid of. But then everybody seems to like it, so somehow the ten the tension for a while that was between the two of us, and I think that's often true of creative things. I was always trying to get. To the edit room, and they were always saying, "Yes, you can come in, Mick." I was going to go in and fucking edit it. My wife said, "But you're not the director, Mick." <laughs> For a while, and they would lie to me. They would say, "Oh yeah, 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 we'll, we'll at, do it." But at, they three. never let me in. Yeah, it's I never three, got Mick. in. Okay, it's at nine. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but in the end, obviously, and Barney and I are friends. I mean, yeah. we text yeah. and email, and but we always were. It, 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 there was, you know, one, because it, it was about me, so, you it's know, these personal. things. Yeah. It, it's very personal. And two, Barney had never done a documentary before. Mm. And also his father was dying. In the, and also I was sick. Although you can't, a lot of those scenes in, you know, in the black space, I'm actually, you know, getting, what was it called? The shots I was getting. I was getting special shots to keep me going while I was waiting for my kidney transplant. But because of the yoga and the massage, I knew how to get my act together when I had to. You know, I shot Karen O. I'm in that process later. Yeah, that and, uh, and then Father John Misty is the other. Well, that was shot later. The Father John Misty was actually shot a couple of years later uh-huh. when we went back and then started to... Well, I wanted more of the present, and then we got we got the live shoot with TV on the radio uh, and some other things, and then they pulled out a lot more, uh, you know, like my cocaine still lives. You know, you're not going to get any pornography from me, but <laughs> my pornography was the cocaine still lives. So, uh, and, and, and it evolved. It is, yes, yes. It evolved. There was a basic idea that Barney had at first. And I always say, well, you know, I don't want to get lost in the 70s. And, uh, no. um, and it was to be two-thirds the 70s or and 80s and then... You know, a third, and in the end, it probably, I would say 25% of it, maybe a bit more, is about the present. And of course, I did the book with Lou Reed, and that piece came up, and um, it, it evolved. Well, and I you, think documentaries do. As you, you are as busy as you've ever been. Crazy nowadays, yeah. And, uh, That's why I said, I, let's do the interview now <laughs> when I've got a moment to breathe. And not leave it, because then it, it might be hard to spend this much time on the phone with you. I, you and I, I certainly appreciate it. So I, I got a last couple of questions. The first, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I, I want to make but sure. But you're a good interviewer. Well, thank, you're like thank you. Thank you. Personable as well as relevant, you know. Thank you. What is your... But I don't know what you look like. If I've got to find you, I don't know what you look like, so I'll have to track you down. You'll have to go and find what I look like. Uh, Yes, I'm sure you're on the internet. I'm not as beautiful as David (laughs) Bowie, but I'm certainly photogenic. I I will tell you that. So, uh, the last... As long as the wife wife still 
still finds you attractive. That's the main thing. <laughs> uh, yes, and she does. So um, last couple of questions. The, the first, I, again, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to make sure it's correct. Your single favorite picture you've taken. That's always tricky. It's And, and sometimes I get a bit glib. And I say, depends on the day of the week, yeah, the week yeah. of the year, or whether or not I'm having my period. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it does change. I mean, it's um, it's hard to say. And then the other sharp answer is, well, I love them all. The wives, the girlfriends, you know, yeah, yeah. the cats. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, of late, it's been that shot of Sid Barrett that I call indecision, where he's got his arms out to the sides and uh, like kind of fist just under his nose. I'd have to, you probably, it's not a fact, it's not such a, you know, the well-known ones are the ones in the room, the color ones, or the ones around the car. Mm -hmm. um, and with Iggy the Eskimo. Um, Iggy, yeah, Iggy the Eskimo. <laughs> yeah, she died recently, I Did found she? out. Oh. Yes. She had developed a little cult thing of her own, well, because there were a couple quite, of other... uh, quite the attractive body. She, uh, yeah, she was in a sense. She wasn't really one of his main girlfriends, all yeah, of yeah. whom I, I did get to know. Um, but she was. This is hip. This is sixty nine. This is the autumn of sixty nine. This is hippie days. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know. It's just yeah. the, the free sex love, is very free, loose. Free love available. and all that. Right, right. Yes, right, of right, course. Right. As well, you get older, you find out that love is never free because no. wives can be quite expensive <laughs> at times. Especially <laughs> if you have a couple. Uh, yes. My favorite shot that just really means something to me is the dude. Ah, yes, of course. The shot that never got used at the time that should have been right. the, the album the, cover. The album cover for Mott the Hoople, right? Yeah, for, but ironically, the great irony of that, I mean, and the album that it ended up on uh, is a band called Third Eye Blind. It must have been mm -hmm. around 2003. They had a big hit with their first album because it was, you know, it's the early part of the millennium and you can still make money off albums. And... Uh, this was the follow-up, and what they wanted, they wanted to take the picture, crop it, and colorize it. Ooh! And ah, I thought, no. oh, no, no, it didn't work. I mean, if you see the cover, you'll see. And, and I thought, that's fine, because that's still, when I signed the contract, the contract was for the color, their colorized version, nothing to do with the original black and white version, which was obviously... Far so, but they pay me a lot of money. <laughs> so although I didn't, it wasn't on the album it should have been on, which was, and I don't know why it wasn't. Yeah. And Ian doesn't know why. I think maybe the drugs had changed, at least for me. <laughs> and and we ended up with that cop from whatever it magazine that I found and cop that. Uh, I don't know. You know, there were a boy changed his mind a lot in those days, and the album was not a hit. It didn't. Nope. It didn't work for them. But the pay packet. So after thought, well, it should have been. It would have been a super famous album cover if it had been all the young dudes. Right. On the other hand, you know, however many years later, would have been thirty years later. I got paid a lot of money. So uh, for a, it's it's a producer album cover for it that it didn't. Uh, 
that d- didn't happen. But it didn't worry me. I thought I'd rather take the money, to be honest with you. <laughs> now, so I've got, that, I've that got enough really, famous albums. It, it was covers. originally shot in 1972, right? And this exactly. Is just some kid on the side of the road? Is that the way I Well, I, it wasn't the only... I was looking for young dudes. I've got a series of pictures that I shot, some with older lads with smart jackets on, some that I just grabbed. But this I found, there was him and his actually a black, he had his black mate, and I've got pictures of him with the cardboard guitar. The thing about it was it was totally organic. That guitar they had made. Right. Just and even the bit of makeup. Uh-huh. Yes, I emphasized it a little bit more in the retouching, but even the bit of makeup that they that the kid had on, it was uh, it was right there. I've got several frames, maybe about six frames of it. Well, and it could have it could have been me. It could have been any of us who wanted to be. Yes, a people have often asked if it's me. I said, yeah, but 1972, <laughs> you know. Where were you? A little bit old for that. <laughs> right, 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 right. All right, so who is the one that got away, or, or who did you shoot, but you never walked away with the kill? Well, I can think of shoots that I didn't do that I wouldn't have minded doing, but I can't, I don't think that ever happened. I yeah, think, uh, I think I, ah, no, I can tell you, because I, I remembered it the other day. I think it was a shoot for a men's magazine with my friend, and it was early days of knowing, called Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy. Wow. And I just acquired, it was one of the first shoots I did with the House of Black. I did this shoot with him and this topless black girl, and she, uh, and I loaded the film the wrong way. So we had to go back and reshoot it. Not that Phil minded. Right. In fact, Phil was a very genial lad. And uh, and I shot back covers. I did about three back covers. He mostly liked illustrations at the time on, on his front cover with his, this Irish artist. But, um, but I shot, including the back cover for the album, The Boys Are Back in Town album. So uh, anyway, that, was the, that definitely got away. Uh, other than that, I can think of three images that I couldn't have taken that if, in an ideal universe I would. One, I would love to have been out, my friend out that I got to know later in life, called Al Wertheimer, who did all those early Elvis pictures before the colonel put the clampers oh, on things. Yes. The ones of him hanging out, kissing that girl, slipping that girl a bit of tongue, you know, doing his hair in the mirror, reading the newspaper. That I would have loved. Or Bob Dylan around the time of Blonde on Blonde and the amphetamine look that he had, you know, with the with the with all the hair and the shades yeah. and the yeah. tight trousers and the boots. Uh, or that Keith Richards. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's still, for all the fabulous records he's done, in some ways, that still might have been his... Well, that and... I think like a Rolling Stone might not have been on Blonde on Blonde. It might have been on the previous album. But but visions of Joanna and things like that. I mean, and that was around the time I saw him at the Albert Hall too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or Keith Richards around the time of, uh, what do you call it, Altamont. And then he looks like the ultimate 
rock. He invented that whole rock and roll gypsy look. Oh you yes. Know? Well, yeah. He, he, well, pick, grabbing uh, Anita's clothes and putting them on. That's uh, that's what. He yeah. Did. Yes. Oh, Anita. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I, she. She was shame. She died last yeah. year too. So many. Well, you got to look after yourself, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've had my sniffs of uh, the other side, and yeah. and I was kind of rejected. I was like <laughs> told, don't bother. <laughs> well, Mick so, Rock, uh, photographer, raconteur, visual poet, projector of the unreal to the unwashed masses, image maker, and... Uh, oh, that's good. Perhaps the embodiment... Projector of the unreal to the unwashed masses. <laughs> uh, I might have to cop that. <laughs> all yours, my friend. And uh, perhaps the embodiment of a rock star himself. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today on Deeper Digs and Rock. Well, I have to say, I've had a lot of fun talking to you. And I hope you managed to scrape a couple of sentences out for use on uh, on your program. And I'd love to hear it when you do it, but you'll do what you want, and I'll put up with it. How's that? <laughs> Great talk, dear. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks. Yes, that went long. I couldn't stop myself, and I was having too much fun visiting with the amazing Mick Rock. So go get on the Googles, look up those photographs, and see what Mick and I just spent the better part of an afternoon talking about. How rock and roll is really about capturing the sound with vision. It was such a pleasure to dig deep with Mick Rock. The only thing that could have made it better was to sit around a fire as the sun sets in the Cote de Rhone with a bottle of his favorite wine... Maybe someday. We highly recommend the documentary Shot, the psycho-spiritual mantra of rock. It really is a fantastic film that spotlights a man who captured the light and the heat that emanates from the gods we so love to discover and discuss. Oh, and if you haven't heard another of our shows, Real Rock with host Andy King, do yourselves a favor and download his episode on the documentary. As always, Andy brings his unique sense of humor while getting down to business. Take a shot and listen. I'd like to thank both Mick and his lovely wife, Patty, who helped set up the interview for us. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Keep coming back for more. Oh, and please tell a friend. Keep up the rockin'. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs. 
in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 